Right, let's uh, pray before we start. Oh, Father, just speak to us tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. There's everything we need to know in it. And Lord, all the time we want to be growing in our knowledge of what you've shown us. Oh, Father, just lead us by your spirit now, we pray. Amen. Right, okay, well, uh, James chapter 5, and I, I think that tonight will be the last in our uh, series on James. We, we should be able to, to do this whole chapter. Um, and uh, let's see, we'll uh, do it in sections. We'll, we'll start off by, by reading verses 1 to 6, and then we'll do that, and then we'll move on through the sections systematically. Right of the old up the workers here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have killed the righteous man. He does not resist you. Um, now, I said a few studies back that we were eventually going to, you know, I mean, really, he's, he's doling out one kicking after another, isn't he? And he's saying, in effect, whichever boot fits, wear it. <laughs> and uh, now he's, he's turning to the rich, um, you know, to rich Christians. And, um, and he's warning them that uh, if, if their behaviour doesn't stop, then, then there's going to be big trouble. And um, now... Obviously, as soon as we start, you know, sort of dealing with this whole area of riches, we've got to make sure that we understand that, that here or anywhere else in the Bible, we're not looking at a judgment on being rich. We're looking at a judgment on the love of riches, which is slightly different, and the exploitation of the poor in order to secure or to maintain your riches. And, and the, the main thing that he's dealing with here, he's not actually saying it's wrong because you are rich. What he's saying is, look at your behaviour as rich people. Look at the way you're exploiting people. You're rich, you've got lots of people who work for you. And he's saying, yet you're, you're withholding their wages. You're, actually, you're defrauding people who have virtually nothing when you have got so much. And what he's dealing with here is just pure greed. The very worst of what you might call uh, capitalism gone mad. I mean, let me say the Bible is neither pro nor against capitalism as such. But what it's dealing with here is the greed and the lust for power and riches that causes those who are rich and in the positions of power 
to exploit and trample on the poor and those who don't have the power. And, uh, and it, it should become quite clear. I mean, here he is using uh, the classic language of Jewish condemnation as found in the Old Testament prophets. I mean, this is so strong, it's unbelievable. But the reason that it is so strong is because that is how strongly the Lord feels about the exploitation of the poor by the rich. And, and he's really saying, this is not on. You know, remember, this is a letter written to Christians. And, uh, you know, here are Christians. And, you know, in effect, he's saying, you know, you, you are storing up the wrong sort of treasures for yourself. Because, you know, sort of like, your God is going to discipline you. God is going to have to do something about this if you don't change. And so what we're seeing here is, is you know, sort of something that God really hates. Oppression. When those in a position of power unfairly oppress those who have no power. And in the Bible, the, 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 the way in which the Bible represents those who don't have any power were the orphans and the widows, because on the one hand, they, in that society, there was no social security. Um, you know, they had no man to look after them and provide for them. But also, it generalizes it by talking about the poor. And in the Bible, the poor are very often seen as the oppressed. And the Bible is incredibly harsh in its condemnation of those who are doing the economic oppressing. But having said that, let's underline again, because this is so important to understand. Because there's always a potential war between the rich and the poor. Now, in the kingdom of God, there's no need for it. Because it's a question of understanding that neither here nor anywhere does the Bible say it is wrong to be rich. The Lord actually makes some people rich. I mean, take King Solomon. King Solomon, in his day, was the richest man on the earth. I mean, he was the Howard Hughes. He was the, um, the Onassis. I mean, he, he was right up there. He was the richest man on the earth. And the reason he became so was because God said, I'm going to make you very rich. It was God's will for Solomon to be rich. And so God does make some people rich in order for them to serve him with their riches. So we must be absolutely clear that the Bible never actually condemns being rich. What we're dealing with here is the logical conclusion of the dangers involved in prospering or being rich. Now, let's, let's go through five Psalms, and let's just go through and see various verses which kind of sum up. And the thing to bear in mind is that as we go through these verses, they give warnings. Now, what we've seen here in these first chapters of James 5 is sadly the logical conclusion of failing to heed the warnings. All right, let's start with Psalm 62 and verse 10. And the psalmist says, Put no confidence in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, there are two things in there. 
Firstly, it's out of the question that anyone who follows the Lord ought to prosper in an unethical way. I mean, for instance, if you're into robbery or extortion, you might well prosper. <laughs> but here the Bible says, no way. Don't touch that with a barge pole. The last part of the verse allows for the fact that riches might increase in a perfectly legitimate way, that God himself prospers, which is wonderful if he's doing it. But he says, if that happens, if riches, if prosperity comes your way, set not your heart on them. That's the point. Don't let them get too important. Go to Proverbs and find chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 28. It says, He who trusts in his riches will wither, but evil, sorry, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And part of the problem is that if you trust in prosperity, I mean, if the Lord prospers you, but you start trusting in it, you know, that, that the love of your life becomes your prosperity and the things you can do with it, then, I mean, what, you know, you wither. Your, your, Christ, your spiritual life will just wither and die. God's blessing will not rest on someone who is trusting in riches. Or indeed, someone who might not have riches, but is lusting after them, determined to be rich at all costs. It withers you. You'll die inside. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Prosperous or poor. The righteous, the one whose, whose trust is in the Lord, looking to the Lord and not riches, then God's blessing will be on one's life. And the thing is, also, if you do start to get prosperous, I mean, in the natural way of things, very often, money produces money. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it works. I mean, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can start making stupid decisions and fortunes can be lost overnight, can't they? But money tends to create money. Now, the point is, one of the great dangers is that a Christian can maybe end up being prospered. I mean, maybe God leads them into a business, they've got business of their own, it's doing really well, and stuff like that. But they don't heed the warnings. And very slowly, very subtly, the love of their money starts to, you know, appear in their hearts. Now, they start kidding themselves. The truth is, their spiritual life is withering inside, and the fruit of it is going. But very possibly, they keep making money. Because it gets, you know, it's like a merry-go-round. It just keeps coming, it just keeps coming. And then the great danger is, the logic can be, well, I mean, it was God who prospered me in the first place. I'm still prospering, therefore God's blessing is still on me. Big mistake. The moment one trusts in riches inside, you wither, you die. Go to Matthew 13, and, and let's see a, a warning that Jesus gives in a, probably what is the, the best known of the parables that he told. Matthew chapter 13, and uh, look at the, the parable of the sower. We won't go it through in detail, go through it in detail. But basically, the parable that Jesus is saying is that there were sort of like, you know, seeds that were sown. And... Um, now, let's see, there were four seeds sown altogether. Now, the first seed number one represented an unbeliever hearing the gospel who wasn't interested, so they didn't get converted. But the other three represent people who, having heard the word of God, became born again, all right, and then they demonstrate how they fared 
after that. All right. So let's let's, let's just read um, read from verse one. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat there, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So there, the seed doesn't even take root. It's just a non-starter, just sitting there on top of the, the soil, which is hard. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they had not much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell upon thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the one we want, okay, the Bible says that, you know, the, the soil that sprang up, the seed that sprang up that didn't have much uh, soil and was scorched in the heat of the sun, that represents someone who gets converted. But the moment that tribulation comes, the moment that persecution comes, the moment that it gets really tough following the Lord, they fall away. That's seed number one. Now then, uh, sorry, that's seed number two. But in verse 18, we get the interpretation for the seed that fell on the thorny ground. Now then, the thing is that when that happens, all right, you've got a seed the one that is burnt up by the sun, that's a Christian life that begins and then is over very quickly. But the one that falls on thorns, like the, the spiritual demise comes quite a bit later on because the thorns have got to be able to grow up first. Let's read from verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. This is Jesus interpreting it. When one hears the word of the kingdom and does, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So there's someone they don't even get converted. Satan just snatches it away. No response. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So here's someone who's got born again. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So, so there's a, a kind of gets born again but doesn't last very long, almost like a stillbirth, all right? But someone who becomes a Christian. Um, verse 23, you've got, as for what was sown on good soil, this is he who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. That's representing people who get converted and then they endure. They follow the Lord faithfully, with all the ups and downs that that means for the rest of their lives. And obviously they bear varying amounts of fruit. But the one that we want is verse 22. It's the seed that falls amongst the thorns, all right? And remember, here we've got someone who has really made a good start to the Christian life. They're not like the seed that as soon as it got difficult, they fell away. They're not like that at all. They've gone on maybe for years, and then something happens. They get choked by thorns. And they, they demise spiritually years into their Christian life. So what is it that does it to them? And it is so dangerous. Verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches choke the word and it becomes unfaithful. How can you see? Possibly one of the greatest dangers to our Christian lives. The general cares of the world. And then the love 
of riches. Can you see, as these believers prosper, and of course it tends to be that the longer you live, the more prosperous you get. Because obviously if you have an income, then with many people, not everyone, not the poor, but with many people, that income, you know, it accrues, it kind of gets bigger and bigger. So most people, I mean certainly in the situation that we're in, are actually becoming more prosperous all the time. And that is the danger point, that eventually you start to fall in love with those riches and it strangles you like thorns and then the seed dies, i.e. the Christian experience comes to an end. You might carry on going through all the motions, but the truth of the matter is that when love of riches or prosperity, when that comes into the heart, spiritual death comes with it. Uh, go to 1 Timothy. Because again, we're establishing here that there's nothing to say it's wrong to be rich, but we're looking at these warnings in the Bible. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, and verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous. Now then, he's not saying warn the rich to start giving away all their money so they're not rich anymore. He doesn't say that. But what he does is he says, make sure that the Christians who are prospering and maybe even becoming rich, because of course ultimately it's a relative term, isn't it? He says, firstly, make sure they're not haughty, proud, proud. You know, start expecting people to doff their caps to them, as it were, because they're so rich. A great danger, a great danger. I mean, as I've often said, I see no problem with a Christian driving a BMW. But if you've got a Christian driving a BMW, because he wants people to be looking up to him socially because his BMW is a statement about his position in life, then can you see the wrong has come in? It's not the BMW's fault. The riches are neutral. But it's what has happened in the heart of that person. So then, certainly the rich or those who are prospering mustn't become proud. You know, sort of thinking that somehow they're a cut above because they've got more money than other people. That is an absolutely ridiculous idea. And he says, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, because at the end of the day, God can take it all away. This is the thing, you know, I mean, it's a good idea if you do prosper. I mean, you know, don't set your heart on it, because who knows, the Lord might just take it away. And I'd have thought it'd be far better to not set your heart on it and to keep it, you see, and not have the Lord take it away than to start getting a bit nose in the air, and then the Lord decides, right, you know, we're, we're due for bankruptcy here, see? So, um, you know, he says that. And then he says, look, they're to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous. Now, can you see that is the exact opposite to what the Christians were like who James was writing to? They had become proud. They had become oppressive. They had become they valued, they put such value on their riches that they no longer valued human life. And that is the great danger, that priorities go absolutely up the spout. Um, again in 1 Timothy and chapter 6, just go back to verse 10. He says, for the love of money is the root of all evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. So, he's saying there, the love of money is the root of all evils. It doesn't mean that at the bottom of every evil is money. What it means when it says that the love of money is the root of all evils, what it means is that once, if the love of money takes hold in someone's heart, then there's no evil they will not commit to get more money. That's the point. If you love money, there's no evil you won't do to get more. Rob, steal, oppress, you name it. Fiddle your taxes, or whatever. That's the point. And here, he's talking about it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. There, he's not even necessarily talking about those who are already rich. That could well apply to a Christian who isn't rich, but they crave to be rich. So, someone who isn't rich can be destroyed spiritually by the love of money equally as much as someone who is already rich. So, it's something that, you know, we've really got to, to be careful of. And then, last verse at this point, go to Hebrews and find chapter th 13. Now, this is basically the key to it. Um, verse 5, Hebrews 13, verse 5, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. And the thing to remember that anything we read in the Bible like this, it's addressed to us, it's addressed to believers. Right? So that means that any sin that the Bible warns believers against is a sin that they are well capable of committing. You see the point? You know, so I mean, it's no use sort of like thinking, doesn't apply to me, does it? Because at the end of the day, it jolly well does. These things can actually appear in any of our hearts at any time. So he says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never fail you nor forsake you. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying there is he's saying, how do you keep your life free from the love of money? Well, by loving the Lord more than anything else. That's the point. If the Lord is with us, that is ultimately all we need. We can be content with what we have, whatever it is or whatever it isn't, precisely because the Lord is with us and he is enough. And so can you see here, there, these warnings, and yet the Christians that James was writing to, I mean, they, had, they were believers who had become totally sold out to the love of money and they were what you will call merciless capitalists not that i'm now arguing for socialism as a biblical model it's not but the point is that here it's capitalism gone mad the oppression the economic oppression of the poor by the rich and the bible here absolutely condemns it out of hand in whatever circumstances the bible never says it's wrong to be rich nothing wrong with being rich at all but the Bible gives all these warnings about riches getting a hold in our hearts. And in verse 6, back in James 5, he says, You have condemned, you have killed the righteous man. And remember earlier on in James, we saw him talking about the fact that he knew that there were Christians who had actually murdered because their resentments against others had got so strong that murder was happening amongst believers. And here he's saying that rich believers had actually murdered in order to secure their love of their riches and their money. 
So that's 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 how far it can go. And uh, you know, so James here is really giving that warning. Now, let's be clear. There's nothing wrong with desiring more than we have. There's nothing wrong with that. But that very desire must be submitted totally to God's will. I mean, for instance, anything wrong in desiring, say, a better car than you might have. Nothing wrong in it at all. But just make sure at the end of the day, if you end up with a better car than you've got now, make sure that that's because God has done it and God has okayed it. And that it's not a question of, well, I want and therefore I'm going to have. We must be content fundamentally with what we've got. Again, there's no contradiction. It's not a contradiction to, you know, to, to want more than you've got and yet to be content with what you have got. That isn't a contradiction because the Bible tells us to make our requests made known to God in prayer. So, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking for more than we've got, but we must be content with what we actually have. And if you just go to Philippians, and um, just, you know, Philippians chapter 4, and probably one of the best-known verses in the Bible in this context. Philippians chapter 4, and we just read from verse 10. And Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And there's Paul saying, he knew what it was to go, you know, sort of through phases where he had loads and loads. And he knew what it was to go through phases when God had him with nothing, and he was going without. But he was saying, whatever God's will is, I'm content. And at the end of the day, it's because the Lord is in there with us. And so that must be the case with us as well. By all means, let us pray. Let us continue to pray and, and desire, you know, changes that we want to see, things that we'd like. But as long as it's all submitted to the Lord, and that we're quite happy that at the end of the day, whether he says yes or whether he says no, we're just as happy knowing that he's with us. Okay, right, let's, let's move on now in, in James 5, and uh, let's read uh, the, the next section from verse 7 to 11. And he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble, brethren, against one another, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we call those happy who were steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And what he turns to now is, is patience. He says, you've got to learn to be patient. 
we saw last time, you know, when he was sort of dealing with, uh, you know, about the whole thing that, uh, you know, don't, don't too, do too quickly say, well, tomorrow I'm going to do this and tomorrow I'm going to do that. Because at the end of the day, you know, the Lord's got his finger. I mean, you've got two buttons in heaven and on and off. <laughs> and the Lord's finger is, is over them and he can press our off button at any moment, you know. So ultimately, I mean, we have great plans for tomorrow, but, you know, we might, we might wake up as it were in glory tomorrow. There's absolutely no telling. And, and here he's saying, look, be patient, be patient. And ultimately, it's, I mean, learning to be patient, this kind of, well, tomorrow I'm going to do this and tomorrow I'm going to do that, that's a kind of a real get up and go. I've got my goals, I've got my, you know, I, I've got my targets and I'm going to meet them and uh, this has got to happen and that's got to happen. And what he's saying, no, look, hang on, you've got to learn to be patient. And, and he says here, you've, you've ultimately got to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, now, why does he say that? Now, remember, in the Bible, when you get the thing about the coming of the Lord, there are two ways that the coming of the Lord can happen for you. It can either be the rapture, or it can be when God presses the off button. I mean, you know, if the Lord presses my off button tonight, that is the coming of the Lord for me, isn't it? Of course it is. But it might be the rapture, or it might be the fact that you never know when the Lord's going to take you home. So he says, you've got to be patient until then. So, so why until then? Well, of course, and here's a glorious thing, because when that happens, whether it's because you go to be with the Lord or whether it's the rapture, the point is then perfection has come and then there's nothing left to wait for because you've got it all. You see? And you're not going to be impatient when you've got absolutely everything you could ever possibly want, are you? So, but he's saying that down here, Precisely because there's always a sense that we haven't fully got what we've what you know what we want. We're always waiting for something to happen. Um, in the really bad times, maybe even actually the rapture itself. You know, Robert's roll on the rapture. All right. But the point is, we're always going to need patience down here because there's always something that we want that we haven't got. And uh, and the example that he gives, he says, look, you know, the farmer. And he says, the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. Now notice that, the early rain and the late rain. That when, when a farmer plants a seed, he starts investing, as it were, in a situation. He, he gives output, so there's going to be a return. All right? But the point is, he plants that seed, but he has to wait quite a long time before he gets any return. So, a farmer, by definition, has got to be patient between sowing and harvesting. I mean, you know, can you, can you imagine a farmer, like, strutting up and down his fields, yelling, <laughs> screaming at the seeds, grow, blast you, grow! I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, he can do that if he likes, but it's not going to make a hapeth of difference towards the outcome. Now. This is what James is saying. There are many things where the truth of the matter is you can't do a thing to hurry them up. So why bother to be impatient? All you're going to do is make your waiting unpleasant. But if you're patient, you can actually make the waiting time a little more pleasant because at least you're happy. But if you're getting impatient, you're going to keep waiting and, uh, and you're still not going to get what you want, but you're going to be unhappy into the bargain. And of course, it's more than that. Because the Lord, you know, being the chief of absolutely everything, is well able to say, ah, oh, still impatient, hey. 
obviously needs to wait longer. <laughs> and, and, and so that is why, at the end of the day, it really does make sense to learn patience. All right. Now, here, in regards to the farm, he talks about the fruit of the ground. That's the analogy. That's the metaphor. All right. The idea is fruit. And, of course, how it relates to us in our Christian lives, I think, primarily, um, yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, there, there are always the things of the world, the legitimate things that we need to be patient about. You know, m maybe a, a deal that's going through or something, or, you know, maybe a, you know, sort of like waiting for your partner to come along. You know, oh, oh Lord, where's my partner so I can get married? Be patient. Or maybe, you know, sort of like you get married and you think, oh, we'd love to have children, but you can't afford it and won't be able to for ages. You've got to be patient. Yeah, there's all those kinds of things. But I think that, you know, that here it's also in regards to, firstly, our own sanctification. Because that, that's ultimately you know, what it's about. The Lord is, is growing fruit in our lives. He's planted, the life of Jesus is in us, he's planted. Do you remember earlier on in James, we saw the thing about the implanted word, and that earlier on James was using the analogy of planting a seed, and it grows in you, and the experience, you, you, you actually then, the, the truth that's been planted, later on as it grows, becomes your experience, all right? And, uh, and it's, this, you know, it's, it's true here with our sanctification. It takes time. It's a process. There is no instant sanctification. You do not mature overnight. You know, I mean, for instance, um, you know, I mean, it's like sort of say, say you went to Sainsbury's, okay, and uh, you think, oh, I feel like a really mature cheddar. And, and, and there are times as a cheese fan when I can tell you that only a really mature cheddar will do, all right? But you look at the price, and it's, it's, it's quite a bit more expensive than the mild one. So you think, oh, well, I know what I'll do, right? Okay, I'll take the mild one and I'll leave it at home for a couple of days and then eat it. <laughs> it's still going to be mild, is it? Maturity simply takes time by definition. And so the thing is that here, when James is saying, look, learn to be patient, one of the things that you've got to be patient about is you've got to be patient with yourself in the same way that the Lord is patient with you. Now, that's a lovely thought. The Lord is patient with you. He is patient with me. Now, I can prove that to you very easily. I'm still here, and so are you. <laughs> we, we haven't sinned unto death yet, have we? Now, yeah, the Lord is incredibly patient with us. So, therefore, we've got to be patient with ourselves. You've got to be patient with yourself. Don't expect everything to be happening overnight. I mean, you know, it talks here about that the farmer has to wait not just for the early rain, but for the late rain as well. And, of course, you get you know, sort of like in Israel, you had half the seed time and they sowed. And then you got the rains, right? Boom, 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 boom. Then you had a dry season when it was just growing. But then, before the harvest and enabling the harvest to ripen, you got the late rains. You know, like more end of the summer, beginning of autumn or whatever. Don't, don't, don't take all this too literally. I'm no agricultural expert. But the point is that the, the, the early rain comes and then the late rain comes, and, and often in between can be quite, quite a dry old patch. Now, the point is that, that very often, when you become a Christian, you, you really sense that early rain. You know, you've come to know the Lord, and you're bouncing along, and he's doing this, that, and the other, and it's absolutely fantastic. 
you know, and you, you feel really close in, he's doing marvellous things. What, what you don't notice, by definition, because you're a young Christian, is that when it comes to fruit, as in holiness, you're virtually no different to how you were when you were an unbeliever. It's just that now you feel the Lord with you. And, you know, so, I mean, one's going around preaching, the, you know, telling people this, that, and the other about the Lord and praying and stuff like that, you know, and living as, as unholy as you possibly can. But the Lord understands that. You know, I mean, sort of like little babies dirty their nappies. I mean, the Lord understands that. But then comes the head down and growing. And believe me, it can be a long time before that later rain comes. It can seem ever such a long time. But the point is, that later rain will come and the fruit will be produced. It will come, even if it's in later years. The point is, be patient. That is what James is saying. And then secondly, I think in regards to what you might call, you know, sort of like the ministry that we long to see, you know, like reaching out. I mean, we, we know what the Bible teaches, uh, you know, about sort of the, the fullness of what we ought to be experiencing as a church. You know, sort of like seeing the gifts of the Spirit amongst us, seeing unbelievers, you know, sort of, you know, coming to know the Lord, but our evangelism is effective. Well, again, be patient. Be patient. We must keep going in prayer. We must keep going in faith. The fact that it isn't happening in a way that we can see doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. In the same way that the farmer might wander around his fields and say, oh, I can't see anything yet or I can only see a tiny little bit at the moment, but the point is, it, it will happen, and he's got to be patient, and so have we. It's as simple as that. And, um, and then in verse 8, he says, you also be patient, like that farmer. And then he says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this is how we become patient. Um, and notice that it's a command in the imperative mood. You know, there's no choice. He says, you also be patient. This isn't optional. This is a commandment. And he says, establish your hearts. Now, we need to understand this a bit. Establish our hearts. How, how do you establish your heart? Um, this word establish, uh, stiritsu, is, is the Greek word. It means to fix, or to make fast, or to set. I mean, you know, Sue steritsues her, her trifle before she brings it for love feast, waits for it to set, so it's hard. You know, it's, it's difficult eating jelly if it's not steritsued, isn't it? You know, it's past the straw. That's what this means. To fix, you know, to, to wait until it's set, to, to make it absolutely fast so it becomes sturdy. Um, so how do you establish? How do you fix? How do you make fast? How do you set? your heart, because that, that's what he's saying here. Let's uh, go through a few verses here. Go to Romans, because this is ultimately how we come into patience. We, we establish our, our hearts. Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 11. And what all these verses have in common is they got stiritsu in it, right? Romans 1 verse 11 will place spot the stiritsu. Paul says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, has anyone spot steritsu there? Strengthen. strengthen. Well done. Oh, well, how about that then? Right, so an ex extra portion of trifle for the, the love feast on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. So here we've got Paul saying, you know, I want to come to you so that I can impart a spiritual gift 
in order to establish your hearts. Now go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And chapter 3. And verse 2. Um, right, he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's servant in the gospel of Christ, to establish you in your faith and to exhort you. No prizes for this one. Yes, the word steritsu, establish, is establish. Right. So here we've got, you know, Timothy being sent out to establish the Thessalonians. All right. Um, establish them in their faith. Um, oh, now verse 11. Verse 11. Go on to verse 11. Now he goes on to say, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. All right. So there he's talking about may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus establish your hearts. Now, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and verse 16. Uh, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 16. And he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish... Now, in those verses, we saw two things, all right? We saw Paul talking about either himself or other believers, like Timothy, establishing the hearts of other Christians, so that as they came amongst them to teach them, to encourage them, they were establishing the hearts of other believers. First thing. The second thing, we saw Paul talking about God the Father and the Lord Jesus himself establishing their hearts. So, on this question of how is it that our hearts become established, that we become strong and mature, fixed in the faith, well, it happens by other believers doing it in us, in our fellowship together. If our fellowship together is being as it should do, it should obviously be encouraging us, strengthening us. It should be establishing our hearts in the faith. And we've seen that Paul talks about the Lord himself doing it. And of course, the Lord wants to work in us by his Holy Spirit so that our hearts can be established, made firm, made strong. Now, that is two of the three factors in the equation. If we're saying, how can my heart be established? How is it that I can be strong and firm and solid in the face? <laughs> in the face. In the faith, like unmoving, unswerving. How does it happen? And it would be very easy, based on the verses that we've seen, to depend on fellowship. Well, I need other people to impart spiritual gifts to me. I need other people to have fellowship with me so they establish my heart. Yes, that's correct. You do need that. 
You can say, no, I certainly need the Lord himself to establish my heart through his Holy Spirit. Yes, correct, you do need that. But those two things are not enough. There's another factor, and of course we've seen it here in James. He says, and you do it as well. You do it as well. You establish your own hearts. All right? So, what we're seeing here is that if we are to become patient, to know that patience, that resting on the Lord and trusting in Him, being absolutely fixed and steadfast, then it means, obviously, we receive from the Lord what only He can do in us. But we receive from our fellowship with others the encouragement and the strengthening of being in fellowship together. But at the end of the day, we must take what we receive from the Lord himself through the body and we must make it a reality ourselves in our own lives. You see what I mean? <coughs> the Lord works to establish my heart. He works partly through other believers to establish my heart. But I've then got to take what I'm receiving from the Lord, what I'm receiving through fellowship, what I'm receiving through every means that the Lord has given me, I've got to receive all that, teaching included, and once I've received it, I've then got to make that a reality in my own life. I've got to respond to it. I've got to establish my own heart. I mean, for instance, you know, sort of like, you know, there, there might be sort of things that one worries about in the future. And yet at the end of the day, we know that the Bible says, and, and we, we talk about it amongst ourselves, we encourage each other to trust the Lord, not to worry. Because at the end of the day, God is going to have, he's going to do his will. So what's there to worry about? And, you know, the Holy Spirit strengthens us as well. You can come along to the fellowship or be in the worship. And all the worries melt away and you think, hey, this is great. And you're in fellowship and, and you're strengthened. But then the point is, you go away, you're on your own, and what happens? All the doubts and the worries pour in. Well, now it's time for each one of us to do our bit when that happens to us and reject the worries and reject the unbelief. Can you see? We've got to take what we've received through the Lord, through other people, and we've got to make it reality in our lives. It's no use receiving strength in fellowship from the Lord if we don't then take that away in our own individual lives and live it out for the coming week. So, the Lord will establish our hearts, we must establish each other's hearts. But at the end of the day, each one of us is responsible for establishing our own heart, as James here is saying. You've, you've, you've just got to set your heart on the Lord. You've got to set your heart, your mind, on the truth of the Word of God. You've got to reject all the rubbish that comes from the devil, all the negative stuff, everything that goes against what the Word of God says. That is up to each one of us. It doesn't require feelings, it doesn't require experiences of any kind at all. All it requires is the simple affirmation of the truth of God's word and sticking to that, rejecting everything else. And if you have to do it feeling dreadful, then that's how you have to do it. You see? But if you do it, you won't feel dreadful all the time. In fact, quite the opposite. Peace, stability will come into your life. And you'll find that patience comes into your life as well. And he says, look, and you've got to do it until, you know, he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
be that coming when God turns your button off and you go to be with him, or be it the rapture. Because at the end of the day, let's say, I, I mean, let's see, how old am I? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still really young, okay? <laughs> so, so, therefore, let's say that the rapture isn't due for another 100 years, and let's say I last out another 50, 60 years, all right? Or, let's say that, um, you know, sort of like a 12-year-old was reading this, and that potentially they might even live to over 100. So let's say they've got 90 years to wait. At the end of the day, and relative to eternity, it's not very long, is it? I mean, I know that life down here can seem quite long sometimes, but it's not. I mean, we're a puff of smoke, that's all. It's very, very fleeting. It's not that long until down here is all over, and, 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 and tear, the, the tears will, will be wiped from every eye. So he's saying, look, establish your hearts. It might seem difficult, but at the end of that, it's not for long might be only 50 or 60 years, and that isn't very long when you set it against the backdrop of eternity, i.e. forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, world without end, amen, is it? Now then, verse 9, and this is all part and parcel of it as well, he says, Do not grumble, brethren, against one another, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. Now, we got this thing about don't grumble against each other because we've already seen that we've got to be patient with ourselves. Now, for some people, that is the hardest thing. There are some people who find it easier to be patient with others than they are with themselves. If that's your lot, that's your lot. Fine, that's just the way you are. But this verse needs to be here because there are others who have endless patience with themselves. But absolutely none for anyone else. And that is why this verse is here. It's not enough to just be patient with yourself. You've got to be patient with other people as well. Because God isn't just patient with you. He's patient with me as well. So we've got to be patient with each other. We mustn't be grumbling against each other. We've got to show each other a heart of love. We've got to sympathise with each other. I mean, you know, we know our faults. We know our sins. So it shouldn't be too hard to make us patient with other people. And, I mean, you know, the... the the exact opposite of graciousness or grace is a uh, you know kind of like you know ready to jump down other people's throat at the first wrong move they make and, and and that's not that's not grace you know to withhold patience from other people that isn't grace and God is gracious with us so we must pass that on to other people and you see here he says look do not grumble against one another that you may not be judged so again he's saying now look look if you're going to do that then 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 the Lord will, he'll do something about it. That it's a disciplinary, if you like, sin, as far as the Christian is concerned. And then he goes to say, he's already covered that ultimately the coming of the Lord isn't far away. And then he goes on to say, remember the judge, Jesus, is standing at the doors. Now, it's rather like the little boy, it helps him to know at the end of the day, his dad's hand is only an arm away. Is he? And Jesus is standing at the doors. So, if if we start to get into grumbling and, and stuff like that and being ungracious to our brothers and sisters and unmerciful and down on them like a ton of bricks and stuff like that, let's remember that the Lord's hand is only an arm away. And uh, there's a verse in the Old Testament, it says that the Lord's arm is not shortened, that it cannot save. And, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of some like myself believe that, that, that an alternative translation is the Lord's arm is not shortened, that it cannot spank. You see? Because the Lord is right there, and if, if we tear each other to bits, well, the Lord is there, and he'll step in, and he'll start doing something about it. Because 
He wants us to treat each other the way that he treats us. And so here, you know, J James is saying, look, don't, don't grumble against each other. Don't get impatient with each other. Don't be impatient with yourself. Give yourself a bit of space, a bit of grace. Make sure you give other people a bit of space, a bit of grace as well. It doesn't mean that correction is suddenly not part of our lives. Of course it doesn't. But it's just talking about the way, you know, the general attitude and outlook. And then he goes on, he says, look, as an example of suffering and patience, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's saying, look, that, that's our example. And of course, the thing is, for us, whatever we're going through, we're not going through what some of these guys went through. Um, you know, and he talks about Job and that, and, you know, and I mean, the thing is, the, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament, I mean, you know, I suppose if you want to talk about, you know, sort of like getting prayers answered, and, oh, this is really difficult, and I'm really finding it hard to live the Christian life, and, and nothing of what I'm believing for seems to be happening. Well, I mean, you know, the truth about a lot of the prophets is, you know, in, in the Old Testament, they were hated, they were despised, they were rejected because of their message. Um, I mean, usually they, they saw no response in other people for their message at all. Just, just go to Ezekiel. You know, so, you know, if we think that, that, that what we're called to do is a bit thankless at times, have a, have a look at this. Ezekiel chapter 3. This is when God is calling him to be a prophet. Chapter 3, fine verse 4. And he said to me, this is God talking to Ezekiel, Son of man, go, get you to the house of Israel, and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of, uh, of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel are of a hard forehead and of a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face hard against their faces, and your forehead hard against their foreheads. Now, here's God calling Ezekiel to a ministry, a prophetic ministry. And right at the outset, God says in your ministry is going to be an abject failure. No one is going to listen. Off you go. <laughs> you see, now, you know, I mean, that, that was very often the lot of the prophets. And, uh, you know, and so what he's saying is that, you know, well, look, you know, it's not perhaps really quite, quite as bad what you're going through. But he said, at the end of the day, these guys were steadfast. The fact that they didn't see what they were longing to see, that they didn't experience what they were longing to experience, what he's saying is, look, it, it didn't stop them. They, they were steadfast. They just kept going. They had their head down and they kept going. They kept following the Lord, regardless of whatever outcomes they eventually experienced. And, and often the outcome that they experienced was that they were, you know, sort of martyred. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy for them. I mean, go to Hebrews 11. It's just um, Hebrews 11 and verse 32. We'll read from there. Hebrews chapter 11 is sort of like, you know, generally known as the gallery of faith. It's looking back into the Old Testament and what people accomplished because they trusted the Lord and kept going. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, 
escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Wow, this is powerful stuff. We'll have some of that, won't we? Others were tortured. Oh. <laughs> refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering over deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since, since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now can you see, the first part of that was, oh yeah, we're into that. But the second part, there were those whose experience was uh, not, not much fun at all. And yet, James is saying, look, that is steadfastness. Let them be our example, that regardless of what we're going through, and we're certainly not going through what they went through, nevertheless, let's, let's be steadfast towards the Lord. You know, let's not doubt him. It doesn't matter what evil comes upon us. Um, he goes on, doesn't he? And uh, it, it, Back to James 5, and, and he mentions Job. And um, he says, you, you, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Well, you don't need me to go through the story. I mean, he was well beaten up by the devil. And, and the point is, everything that he was going through, he didn't even know what was going on. So the fact that God was using him to demonstrate something to the devil, Job didn't know, you know, what was going on. I mean, it looked to him like God had forsaken him and that God had turned against him. And it was absolutely horrendous. But... What was it that he said? I mean, when he heard that his family had been killed, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is steadfastness. And then when things got worse and worse and worse, and when the only conclusion he could logically come to, given the knowledge that he had at the time, was that God was horrible, all right, he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And Job said, it looks like God is really awful, but he's not really, and I trust him. I don't know what's going on, but I trust the Lord. Now that is steadfastness. Job refused to curse God. He refused to call God's love into question. How easily we start thinking that God's horrible. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate blasphemy, isn't it? To think that God's horrible, he's not horrible. He knows what he's doing and everything is for our good. And steadfastness says, okay, right, okay, things might be hard, blah, blah, blah. But what does it matter? The Lord is with me. The Lord knows what he's doing. Go to Ephesians 6. And you see, at the end of the day, we can do this or not do it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't... It doesn't require anything except a bit of determination and a refusal to believe something, you know, horrible things about God. He's wonderful. I mean, in, in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. You know, how, how can we think he's horrible? Ephesians chapter 6. Spiritual warfare. I was sort of like chatting with someone the other day along the lines of, you know, almost when are we going to get into spiritual warfare and saying, well... This is spiritual warfare, what we're talking about here, not doubting the Lord. Because every minute of every day, Satan wants you to doubt the Lord. You're in spiritual warfare every day. 
I mean, don't think it's just that, you know, sort of like a heavy prayer burden for blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's spiritual warfare as well, and, and binding the devil there. That's all spiritual warfare. But so is this, the doubts that come every day that prevent us from being steadfast. Now, Ephesians 6, verse 13, he says, Therefore take the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now he's talking about Satan throwing his fiery darts at us all the time to make us doubt the goodness of God, to make us doubt whether or not he's actually in charge. And here he says, look, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. And you can sum this up, you know, this is establishing your heart. And you can sum this up as saying, look, don't just do something, stand there. Because we stand in the truth of God's word. That is our steadfastness. God's word is true. His promises can be trusted. Therefore, we will not doubt the Lord. Whatever evil might come upon us, whatever difficulty might come upon us, we don't doubt the Lord. We remain steadfast. Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. And verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you, this is Satan's fiery dance, which comes upon you to prove you, right, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, you know, we expect difficulties if we're Christians. It shouldn't be strange, you know, to think, oh, well, I'll follow the Lord, and, and th things are difficult. Oh, that's odd. That's not odd quite normal. Through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. And he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, the point is, we share his sufferings at the moment, but one day, remember all James is saying that the Lord is at hand and be patient till the coming of the Lord, we're going to share his glory. Well, isn't it ultimately worth it? Well, of course it is. And so, therefore, in bringing Job in at this point, he's kind of, he's, he sums up his argument, and, and he's saying, so therefore, can't you see, be patient. I've demonstrated you through the prophets. I've demonstrated you through Job. Be patient. Be steadfast. Establish your heart. Be absolutely firm in following the Lord. Right, okay, let's, let's move on. Now, verse 12, because he's hopping about all over the place. You remember when we, you know, sort of like introduced it, the first couple of talks, we said that he shoots all over the place. No rhyme nor reason particularly in it. And now he goes on to something else completely. And uh, he says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. And uh, we've got to understand, he's writing to Jewish Christians, under, under the tradition of the elders, they had an oath for every occasion. I mean, they were oath mad. Um, if on the basis of this verse, when people, you know, if anyone has to go to court or whatever, that, that they feel that they'd, they'd rather not swear on the Bible on the basis of this verse, but just affirm, that's fair enough. But if anyone has ever sworn on the Bible, don't worry about it. I'm not sure this is what it's talking about. So I don't think it ultimately matters one way or the other. 
Although, possibly, if I ever had to go to court, I'd probably affirm, just to make absolutely sure. But that's not, you know, swearing an oath on the Bible, I don't think is quite what this is about. You've got to remember the background that they had an oath for every occasion. And what it basically ended up as, when they swore out an oath, was, was sort of, it boiled down to, look, I'm telling the truth this time, honest, see. And the fundamental problem is that they were so dishonest that the purpose of an oath became to say, well, this time I'm speaking the truth. Virtually an open admission that most of the time I don't. Now, the reason that James is saying that that, that is wrong is he says, look, people should know that we are always telling the truth. If we're Christians, there should be no doubt in anyone's mind at any time that we are telling the truth. And this should be based on their experience of us that we tell the truth. We shouldn't need oaths to give weight to our honesty. It's as simple as that. Our honesty should be absolutely obvious. Now then, obviously, people who have a problem with telling porkies, be encouraged, all is not lost. Because if you do tell lies, well, if you have, if, if you tell a lie, well, for heaven's sake, confess that and whoever you've lied to, tell them, oh, look, I'm sorry I lied. Because at least if you're becoming repentant of the lies, you're giving other people the basis to trust you. You see what I mean? I mean, I'm, I, I'm not, you know, I, I mean, I've always said, if I discover that someone lies, there's, there's just nothing to trust them about. O only a twit trusts a liar. You're dark. Because if someone tells lies every now and then, you can never, ever, ever, ever know whether they're telling the truth. Therefore, don't trust them. You'd be silly to, all right? But if there's someone who lies but says, you know, if, if there's someone I know, oh, look, I'm sorry, that was, that was a porky, Beresford. I'm sorry about that. I can trust them. I'll just have to wait a little, I'll just have to wait a while to find out whether they're lying or not. But if I know they're going to put that right, then I can trust them. You see what I mean? But when you've got people who lie, who are untruthful, I mean, ab absolutely all at sea. I mean, look, the Christian's word is his bond. James Bond. It's, it's got to be. It's got to be. And notice that he says here that you may not fall under condemnation. Condemnation being the same word in the Greek that gets translated judgment. And again, you've got a disciplinary offence here. If a believer is into lying, God is going to do something about it. It's too serious. Lying is too serious. Because it erodes any basis of trust. And trust is the basis of relationships. And relationships is the basis of fellowship. And relationship with the Lord and each other is what the Christian life is all about. So if, if, if you lie, I mean, don't expect any vast improvement in your fellowship with the Lord and other people until you've started to put that right. You know, so hence he puts that bit in. Right, now then, verse 13, completely different subject. He goes off onto something else now. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. And, you know, you've, you've got the old church life bit there, the sharing, but good and bad. Good and bad. If you're having a hard time, don't be afraid to let people know about it. You know, um, but if if, if you're having a good time, well, sing louder, you know. Um, not saying, you know, not an open invite, you know, for every moan and groan or something like that, but, but share. What's inside? Share. It's no problem. Um, you know, go to Romans, Romans 12, and uh, 
just a little Romans chapter 12, little key to fellowship here. If you don't let people know what's inside, how are they going to get to know you? They're not going to read your mind, are they? Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You see, have it. You know, James says those who are down, blah, blah, and those who are happy, blah, blah. But, and indeed, it's right for the rest of us to respond in kind to that need. But you can only rejoice with someone if you know they're rejoicing. And you can only weep with someone if you know they're weeping. And, you know, so, so there's that, that sharing. That sharing. Bearing each other's burdens and cheering each other up. And plenty, of, plenty more of both, please. You know, that, that's what fellowship is. Sharing. Right, verse 14, 15. That's quick, wasn't it? Is any, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Just, just notice there the assumption that, that New Testament churches were led by elders. You had a plurality of leadership there. Um, and, you know, it talks here about, um, you know, sort of like, uh, for sickness here in this context, the anointing with oil. Now, else, elsewhere in the Bible, you know, sort of like you get the laying on of hands. Um, let's, let's just sort of see this. Uh, the, the, just go to Mark, Mark chapter 16. And uh, I just want to establish basically one thing here that you're possibly not aware of. Uh, Mark chapter 16 and uh, verse 18. Um, well, we'll start from verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not... I haven't been drinking, honestly. <laughs> and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So there you have praying for unbelievers, the evangelistic context there, the laying on of hands. And now go, still in Mark, but back to chapter 6 and verse 12. And this is after Jesus has sent out the twelve to preach the gospel. And it says, So they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now, the main thing that I wanted to bring out there is that in this context, as we're seeing, it's the anointing of oil. That's what the Bible says. So, if possible, if you've got any oil, do that rather than laying on of hands. But that in evangelism, the anointing with oil was also used along with the laying on of hands. That, that was the only thing. So it's legitimate to anoint with oil in praying for unbelievers in the evangelistic context. But, uh, you know, sort of here, it's specifically, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, and they'll anoint him with oil. Now, we've, we've got here clearly a believer, someone in the church, and, and I think that what we've got here, you know, this thing about, you know, sort of like, you know, call for the elders of the church, uh, I mean, why that? Does that mean that the plebs, you know, the non-elders can't pray for a brother who's sick? Well, no, of course it doesn't. What you've got here is simply the fact it's someone who's sick, and because they're sick, they can't get along to the meetings. They're bedridden. Now then, 
Therefore, well, call the elders. Because at the end of the day, especially if the elders are full-time, they're the men who have got the time to go and pray with that person, maybe late that night, where everyone else got to be up for work the next morning, or maybe the next day, during the day. And also, it'd hardly be viable to have the whole fellowship come round and pray for you. You know, you, you know, your bedroom might not be big enough. So I think it's, it's purely this practical thing. If someone is, is, is ill to the extent that they're actually prevented from coming, then they have every right to, you know, to call on the elders who will go and pray for them, that the Lord will raise them up. And, uh, you know, but notice here, it's not automatic, it's on their request. It's if they want to. It's if they want to. And I can think of circumstances where you positively wouldn't want the elders coming round when you were ill. Especially the ones who they're going to pray. They're going to come round, they're going to pray the prayer of faith. So you're going to be healed, brother. See? So, you've you got a problem. You're ill. Well, it's understood. You, you don't feel that good because you're ill. Okay. You think, oh, oh no, the elders are going to be here every minute, and then any minute, and then I've got to get healed. And suddenly you feel even worse. Because not only are you ill, but you've got half hour before they get here, and then you've got to get better again, you know, or they're going to tell you off for not having enough faith or something like that. So it's voluntary, but the point is that here it does speak of that going to them and praying. And here we have got a promise of the miraculous. Now, don't ask me to go into all the reasons. Well, why is it that we pray for people who are sick and they're not healed? But why is okay? Well, put it like this this is what the Word of God says. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep praying for the sick. And the day is going to come when we see them healed. It's as simple as that. Uh, back, back to the old patience thing. All right? You know, we're just going to keep going and the Lord is going to do it. Don't ask me when. Don't ask me for detailed explanations of why not yet but we're going to do what the Bible says and we're going to pray believing. And if we pray for someone and they're not here, we're going to say, well, praise the Lord next time. All right? And that's what we're going to do until we're actually seeing the Lord doing it. And notice here that there's a connection between here illness and having committed sins. It doesn't in any way say that if you're real, it's because there's unconfessing in your life. But it is saying that if you're ill, okay, then just double check. There might be. It's not saying definitely, it's just saying, I might be, okay. And then in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Opens wide out now, so we can see it's not just the elders. Confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. There again, you've got this possible connection sometimes between illness and sin. And there are times when it can be good to confess our sins to each other. You know, I mean, definitely, if I've sinned against you in a way that you're aware of it, I've got to come and confess that sin to you. But there are times when it's just maybe good to do it. I mean, maybe feeling the need to humble oneself. I'm not about being silly about it. Stand up in a meeting and tell everyone your secret sins. I mean, that'd be daft. But, you know, there, there may be, for instance, an, an occasion when you feel well, it's going to be right for me to do this because it will humble me, or maybe to do it because it, you know, it, it might be an encouragement for other people and that. So, you know, sort of like there's a time, time to do that. And he says, look, you know, and then pray for each other. And, uh, you know, so there, you know, maybe more sharing, maybe we'll eventually release power so that we do see healing. Who knows? I mean, one way or the other, we're just going to, you know, keep, keep going on that. But the prayer of faith, we're going to keep praying. It's as simple as that. There's, there, there's no reason not to. And then in, in verse 17, he goes on and talks about Elijah. And he says, look, Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves. And he goes, look, and he prayed and kept a drought going three and a half years. 
But he said he was no different from us. He was a sinner like us. He had the same God as we do. And, uh, and he goes on to say, he said he prayed fervently. And that Greek word means with continuing perseverance. And we're back to patience. That's one of the clues. We're back to steadfastness. Elijah kept going. And here, the prayer of a righteous man, i.e. someone in fellowship with God, that's all it needs, in ongoing fellowship with God through confession of sin and repentance, the prayer of you and I, if we're right with God, has great power in its effects. Let's believe it, and therefore let's do it. And Elijah, in his praying, he kept going. That was the point. He didn't let go. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And that perseverance made things happen. It's as simple as that. And it's the same with us. We must increase in prayer. I mean, things are going to happen. The more we pray, the more will happen. Now again, I'm not going to say, well look, you know, if we all start tomorrow to pray a lot more than the day after, we're going to start seeing miracles all over the place. I'm not, it might not be that quick. Again, the farmer has to be patient. But what I'm saying is if we don't pray, let's not expect anything to happen. You know, the more we pray, the more God's going to do. The more things we pray to happen, the more we're going to see happen. It's as simple as that. At the end of the day, we can't dodge prayer. You know, I mean, James Holmes in on it here, kind of winding up the letter. And it's important. We need to be, you know, individuals of, of, of prayer. You know, so I mean, the, the moment, if, if you have a job with prayer, start with 10 minutes a day. We spoke about this the, the other week. If, if you're doing 10 minutes, up it to 20 or whatever, you know, if you're doing three hours, up it to four, go on, treat yourselves. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, we need to be increasing in prayer more, more than we are at the moment, because God will move through prayer. And then, you know, sort of like winding up the letter, and it's a, a bit of a sudden halt, you know, you think, you know, but then that's the way James is. He says, my brethren, this is verse 19, 20, my brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Because, I mean, the point is, if we start going off the rails, go off at a wrong direction, so you get more and more and more wrong. You see, you go off at a tangent, and the further you're going in the wrong direction, the more of a problem you're going to get into, the more spiritual death will come into your life the more sins are going to be committed. And so James is saying, look, if you nip it in the bud, if someone's going wrong, if you nip it in the bud, just think of the, the, the disasters and the, the problems that you're going to rescue that person from. And, uh, but just go to Galatians 6, where we just need to um, just see with Paul when he deals with this, the thing about attitude, because that's all important, the attitude that we do it with, and, and in Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. There are two things there. Gentleness, a bit of compassion, a bit of love and understanding, and also the realisation that, well, tomorrow it might be you. So there's certainly no, you know, sort of looking down your nose from on high. And, uh, and, and that's something that's uh, not grumbling against each other, not, not, not nitpicking with each other, not, you know, correcting at the drop of a hat. But when necessary, let's do it. 
and uh, but to do so in the right way. And then you get rather a dead halt, you know, just stops there. You think, well, I mean, no sort of love James or, you know, PS or, you know, it's sort of like, mate, makes you feel that something ought to be there, but then it's just the way James writes, all, all over the place, a little bit haphazard. And so it ends there in a, a, a dead, you know, sort of bang like that. So I will as well. Um, in every good work and word.